Hello folks, welcome to the Bible Project Daily Podcast. And the project is to work through the entire Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. You're very welcome to join me again today as we're continuing together through the Gospel of Matthew. Can I just say that if you are here for the first time, then why not make the decision to make the study of the Bible part of the rhythm of your daily life? Click on the subscribe or the follow button wherever you happen to be receiving your podcast from. And then hopefully you'll never miss another single episode. And if you are here for the first time, please do stick around at the end when I'll give you a few updates and a few ways in which you can connect to more teaching I make available through this ministry. Always free and always free for you to use in whatever way you want. Anyway, with that all said, we'll drop straight back into the text and pick up where we left last time, and I'll see you at the end. Bye for now. You know, Christians believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the Messiah who was promised in the Old Testament. And in this series, we've been working together through the Gospel of Matthew, and I actually suggested that one of the main reasons Matthew chose to write his account of the life of Jesus was because he wrote it in order to prove that Jesus was the Messiah, the King of Israel. He did that primarily because he was writing to a Jewish audience at that time, but also it's important when we consider the Hebraic roots of our faith, and we can tie it all together in that way. So when it comes to what Jesus did proving and demonstrating that he was Messiah, there's probably no better section in all of this book or any book to demonstrate that than in chapters 8 and 9 of Matthew. In the preceding chapters that we've been looking at, well, if you remember 5 through 7, he gave us that lengthy discourse where he addressed both the disciples and the crowd that gathered around in what was called the Sermon of the Mount. But now we've arrived and we're part way through chapters eight and we'll be going into chapter nine. And what we're seeing is Jesus doing a series of miracles. Now we know by comparing this passage with other passages of scriptures that these miracles are not listed in chronological order. They're not listed in the order in which they happen. They're listed in order of meaning which immediately tips us off to the fact that Matthew has quite another point to make. You see, what he wants to do, he wants to demonstrate, as I said, that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. And we can know by examining the miracles and seeing how he arranges them and what he says about them, what he's actually trying to teach us here. Now, we've already noted a couple of days ago that these miracles are grouped into three groups and that within each group of miracles, there are three miracles in each. So a couple of days ago, we began looking at the first of this group of three, and it consisted firstly of the healing of a man with leprosy, followed by the healing of a servant of the centurion, you remember that, and then they were followed a very short section where he talked a little bit about the cost of discipleship, the emotional and personal cost that people might have to face in choosing to follow him, and then it is about to describe some other miraculous healings. Now today, we're beginning to look at this second group of three miracles, and I want to ask the question, why Matthew piles up miracle upon miracle for us? 
What more could we want to know than what we were already taught with those first three miracles? They already demonstrated that Jesus Christ had power over illness and disease. What else is there? What more could Matthew possibly want us to know? Well, apparently, Matthew thinks that there is more that we can benefit from knowing, and he tells us what that is in this next set, this next group of three miracles. We shall now see how he calms a storm, casts a demon out, and heals a paralytic man. So what do these miracles do to help prove that Jesus is the Messiah and what is different about them to the first group of miracles? Do they tell us anything that the first three miracles didn't? Now we need to remember as we study through these chapters, bearing the fact in mind that at the end of the first group of miracles, Matthew had said that Jesus had something to say about discipleship. That was at the end of the first group. And he's going to do the same again at the end of the second group. So what does all this have to do, not only with identifying Jesus as the Messiah, but what it means in terms of us being disciples of Christ? Well, to answer some of those questions, I'm going to suggest over the next few days that we go through these three miracles and try to capture the essence of what I think Matthew is trying to tell us. So I think it's going to be three episodes and I'm first of all going to look at the three miracles and then I'm going to look at what Matthew wants to teach us, what he feels we need to learn about discipleship by studying them. So with that in mind, let's begin with the first of these three miracles and it begins in chapter 8 verse 23 where Matthew is heard to say that the disciples call out, wow, even the winds and the waves obey him. So picking up Matthew 8 verses 23 to 27. It tells us, Now when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And suddenly a great tempest arose in the sea, so that the boat was covered with waves. But he was asleep. Then his disciples came to him and woke him, saying, Lord, save us, we are perishing. But he said to them, Why are you fearful, O you of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. So the men marvelled, saying, Who can this be that even the winds and the sea obey him? Obviously, this is the miracle of Jesus stilling the storm. So let's just look at that for a brief moment. Now, obviously, this is the miracle, the famous miracle of Jesus stilling the storm. So we're just going to look at that for a little while. And we first of all notice that there's a storm. Now, it's useful to know a little bit about the storms that were whipped up in the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is not a huge body of water. It's basically about nine miles long by 12 miles wide. And these, of course, were experienced fishermen. They had fished on the seas of this lake for many years. That's how they made their living, in fact. But what we need to take account of, what we need to know about the Sea of Galilee is the fact that it was surrounded by mountains particularly on the western side, and that there were gorges through those mountains. And when the wind came blowing through the mountains, it was compressed and caused very strong gales to come through the mountain passes and hit the lake and storms could be whipped up very, very quickly. So on this occasion, they're crossing the lake. And remember, Jesus has just done a very lengthy period of teaching and preaching. And he's been going around working his miracles now. So he's no doubt in human terms tired, which is why, well, straightforwardly, he goes to sleep. 
But then we find this situation where he's in the boat asleep and the disciples are in the boat and they're in the midst of this sudden storm and yet Christ is there just sleeping. So the disciples come to him and try and wake him up saying, Lord, save us, we're perishing, we're going to die. Isn't it interesting, I feel, that the storm didn't wake him up but they came to wake him up. Just as an aside, interestingly, I grew up in a house for the first 10 years of my life which, although was in a rural setting, was quite close to the main Belfast to Dublin railway line. The line ran closely by, and it was between stations, so the trains were going quickly. And the railway line was probably less than 100 yards from the edge of our garden. But, you know, because I grew up in that environment, I never remember really noticing it. I knew the train was there and I remember hearing them, but never in a way that disturbed me. I do remember occasions in the garden when we were playing with friends. Occasionally the conversation would have to stop for a moment as the train went past and then we'd just continue. But really growing up in that environment, I adjusted to the sound and knew that the train would go past before every quarter before the hour and every quarter after the hour, all the way from before six in the morning to the last train at 10.45 in the evening. Even in bed at night, I can remember the distant sound of the train going past at 8.15, 8.45, 9.15, 9.45, 10.15, 10.45. And in a way, that sound almost became comforting to me, but I kind of sort of zoned it out. But I remember my mum telling me that when I was a baby, she could sleep through the signs of the train because she'd lived there for, I think, seven years before my older brother came along. And she got used to the trains passing and they never woke her in the night. But she said that if in the middle of the night, either my brother or my made the slightest whisper or whimper, she would sit up in bed and hear it. Now, I've seen this story, these events of the storm on the lake and Jesus be asleep many times. And I think they kind of miss this part of it. The fact that God bends his ear towards his children so they can always hear us, even when all around can be a cacophony. Or it can even just be the cacophony of the mess of our daily lives. So God hears us. He has an acute ability to hear us when we need him. So in this situation, they turn to the Lord, they go to him and they say, you've got to do something. We're in danger of dying here. And I think it's worth saying that there are really two storms going on here, aren't there? There's the physical storm on the Sea of Galilee and there's this other turmoil in the souls of the disciples. What I find fascinating is that these guys are the experienced fishermen and they're going to someone who in a sense was just a carpenter to help them navigate the storms of the sea. But I believe that they turn to him because of their growing understanding that this man Jesus is much, much more than a carpenter. Which is why he says to them, Why are you so faithful, O ye of little faith? So he actually rebukes them, doesn't he? Now, he probably does this because by this time, they will have already seen him do those miracles that Matthew's just described for us. Amazing things. And they ought to know that this situation would have been not only entirely possible for him to deal with, but if he was really God's Messiah on earth, it's very unlikely that God's plan for him would be for him to perish in the storm of the middle of the Sea of Galilee. So Jesus asks them quite reasonably, why are you afraid? 
I'm here. This is just a storm. Why are you afraid? Just trust me. Trust God. But then he gets up and having rebuked them, he now turns and he rebukes the wind. In my mind, it's almost like he rebukes the wind as if the storm was just a naughty boy. And the text then says that the sea and the wind immediately calmed down. In fact, it says a great calm came upon the lake. Now the disciples are awestruck again, saying, How can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? What was probably not lost in them was the religious writings that they knew contained what we call the Old Testament today. Their religious writings that they knew. It clearly taught that God was the God who could calm the seas. That's specifically mentioned a number of times. For example, in Psalm 107 verse 29 and in other places. So by doing this particular miracle... Jesus is not only calming the sea, he is demonstrating that he is the God and has the power of the God of the Old Testament, the one who calms the storms. But some have also noted that that there are two storms being dealt with here at once in this story. There are two storms in the light of the first one, which is the storm in the lake, and the second is the storm of life which is the storm in the hearts of the fearful disciples. And we all struggle through the difficult times of life in that way. And at times it can be compared to like a turmoil in our souls. But the presence of Jesus in our life can calm the most terrible of emotional storms. And that's a picture that's been painted here. The tempest in our hearts can be turned into peace. When the cold bleak wind of sorrow blows in our lives, we can find a calm and a comfort in the presence of Jesus. God in the flesh, Jesus incarnate, Emmanuel. So Jesus was there in the storm, the storm in the lake and in their storm and fear and he was able to dissipate both, to dissipate the fear in their hearts whilst at the same time dealing with the storm on the lake. But while all of that is true, and that's the factual accounts of what happens on this occasion, I don't want you to walk away from this without missing the major point that Matthew is trying to make. And that is the fact that Jesus has calmed the storm on the lake in order to demonstrate that he is God. In the flow of Matthew 8, this is taking Matthew's point to a new level than that of the previous group of three miracles. There we saw that Jesus had power over disease in the first set of miracles, but now he's demonstrating that he also has power over creation and nature itself. As someone has once said, Christ is here demonstrating the same authority that was expressed when the world was created through him by the word of his mouth. The authority that brought the world into existence, in fact the whole universe into existence, look at Hebrews 1 verse 1, that that same power and authority can certainly control the elements in nature on that particular day. Jesus was demonstrating through this miracle that he is indeed the Lord of creation and that's the point of this miracle. In the final analysis, Jesus stills the storm to demonstrate to his disciples that he had not only previously shown he had power over illness, but now that he has power over nature itself and to teach them that he can also deliver them from any storms in life that they might face. 
One other last word before we go on to the next miracle. These guys, you've got to know, were already following the Lord, right? You see that? So don't miss out on the fact that following the Lord doesn't mean that you won't encounter storms in life. They were with him, literally, in the same boat. That's an expression we use, isn't it, today? And they were encountering a storm. Sometimes people can get the idea that if you're following the Lord, if you make a decision to become a Christian and follow Christ, that you won't have trouble in your life. Well, my friend, life is actually full of trouble. The Bible tells us that. I often say to people who are telling me about the trouble they're having in life, I just say, well, welcome to life. I probably think you've heard me say something like that several times in our Bible study times together over these last few years. Have you ever heard me say, well, that's life, so get used to it. Life is full of trouble. And that's not just me speaking. That is the word of God speaking also. But in this case, what Jesus does is demonstrate, yes, that he's God in flesh, but also that he can deal with anything, absolutely anything, that life will throw at you or whatever cards are dealt for you. Okay, there's a second miracle that begins at verse 28 after which Jesus will get in the boat again and once again leave to go to another region of Galilee. So let's read together and look at that miracle. When he had come to the other side, so this crossed the lake after the storm, to the country of the Gessarines, there met him two demon-possessed men coming out of the tombs, exceedingly fierce, so that no one could pass that way. And suddenly they cried out, saying, What have you to do with us, Jesus, you Son of God? Have you come to torment us before the time? Now a good way off from them, there was a herd of swine feeding. So the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, permit us to go away into the herd of swine. And he said to them, Go. So when they had come out, they went into the herd of swine, and suddenly the whole herd of swine ran violently down the steep place into the sea and perished in the water. Then those who had kept them fled, and they went into the city and told everything, including what had happened to the demon-possessed man. And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to depart from their region. Okay, we see in the narrative here, he gets into a boat and crosses over, and he comes to the region of the Gergesenes. Sometimes it's spelt and pronounced Gadarenes. Either is okay. This is a famous story of Jesus casting out a demon. Maybe I should pause and talk about whether we, as Christians living in the 21st century, still believe in demons today. Do we even still believe in the devil? C.S. Lewis, a very famous professor at Oxford here in England after the war, he was a man who started out an atheist and became a Christian, said in his book, The Screwtape Letters, that there are two equal and opposite errors into which the human race can fall when it comes to regarding the idea of demons and the devil. One is to disbelieve their existence altogether, and the other is to believe, but to have an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They, he said, meaning the devils, are equally pleased by both errors. You see, you can take one of two extremes when approaching this, if you're not careful, when it comes to the demonic and demonic activity. You can just brush it off at non-existent, or you can become unhealthily obsessed with it. 
I believe the true middle ground is to acknowledge that absolutely the Bible teaches that there is a devil and that there are demons, no less than what's what we're seeing Jesus deal with here. So how will Jesus deal with this demonic situation? Well, we look at that and how he does it and what he does in the next episode. Okay, folks, I hope that's helpful and opened a few eyes for it. And I'll pick up exactly where we left off next time. And we look at the casting out of the demons in this uh, amazing story and try and think about what it means. Like I said at the beginning, let me remind you that if you're here for the first time, there's plenty more teaching available. Now, if the links aren't showing up on the place where you get your podcasts from, then I can suggest you go straight to thebibleproject.buzzsprout.com. Because within that, there will always be an episode notes page and a transcript of everything I've said. That appears on some podcast provider websites, but some don't actually let the active links go through. So if you're not getting them where you get your podcast from, go through to where it's hosted on the thebibleproject.buzzsprout.com and you'll find links there not only to the transcript, but to places where you can connect with other teaching that I do places like my LinkedIn page and my Patreon page. Those are places where I tend to put more structured discipleship type training courses. And there's also places there where you can find the Bible Project's Facebook page and the YouTube channel, which is the place where I plan to create the long-term archive of the audio files of all these podcasts. So if you're looking for teaching in particular, as the project expands, more and more books and themes are covered it's very hard to go through to the main podcast and scroll through hundreds and hundreds of episodes to find what you're looking for within the youtube there's still just going to be the audio files with the scriptures as a visual image but within there they're going to be sorted into playlists both by book and by theme so i hope you'll find that more and more helpful in the longer term And there's also places there even where you can connect to where I do my sound design and music. But having said all that, a big thank you to each and every one of you who have made this amazing decision to make the study of the Bible part of the rhythm of your daily life. I believe we're about two and a half years into what I think will be a 10-year project. But I'm so glad, I'm so thrilled in fact, that you've decided to join me on this journey. And what started as... When I launched it with, I think, 24 downloads in the first episode, we're now approaching over 180,000 downloads in over 160 countries worldwide. And that's amazing to me. So thank you so much. It's so encouraging to have you come alongside. And please, if you are enjoying and valuing it and finding that this is helpful, then consider liking it or sharing it on your social media account and putting a link in so other people can make a decision to bring the teaching of the Bible into the orbit of their lives, in fact, to make it part of the rhythm of their daily lives and join us on this amazing journey together. Anyway, that's it for now. I do hope I'll see you back here again tomorrow. Well, it'll be tomorrow for me, whatever day it is for you that you pick up your podcast. 
from the Bible Project Daily Podcast. Bye-bye for now.